Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Joining me in the studio today is Scott Gwilliam. Scott is the managing partner and co-founder of Keystone Capital out of Chicago. It's an honor to be with Scott as he brings us a different way of thinking about private equity and partnering with the built environment. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Well, it's good to be together, and thanks for taking this time on this Friday and joining us for This is Design Intelligence. Scott? Thank you very much for having me today. So you've been in this space. Let's see. I think that, that um, let's see, Keystone is in its 20th or a little bit over 20 years at this point. This is our 28th year. Tremendous. Just tremendous. And uh, it's been, I'm always an adventure. Private equity is never dull. Always an adventure. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got started into this space and what drove you this direction. So I came from a family that was in the engineering and construction space. I always did a lot of entrepreneurial things as a child. I started numerous different businesses, including putting myself through college that way. And uh, so that's that's the career I was trying to pursue. I came out of undergraduate. I, I went to work on Wall Street, just thinking that that would give me a, a core kind of foundational education in business. Uh, but always with an eye towards eventually doing something entrepreneurial. And that's about that time. This was 1995, 1994. Back then, there were probably only five or 600 venture capital or private equity firms. And I think, actually, if you looked at the capital they raised that year, it might have only been about $25 billion dollars. In terms of context, there's now about 12,000 venture capital and private equity firms. Uh, and I think last year they raised approximately $650 billion. So the industry has certainly emerged in, from a cottage industry to something much larger than that. Uh, but I, anyway, I, it was in the early innings of, of private equity, and I was fortunate enough to be given an opportunity to come to Chicago to work for what was at the time the largest private equity firm here. And I thought that that would get me closer to the actual operations of a business. So I, I came and I joined them. And then I had the great fortune of meeting uh, what uh, ultimately became my, my business partner, and arguably the best mentor I've ever had. And we started Keystone uh, with an eye towards finding a little business that we could run as operators. And we found a great professional services business in the healthcare space. He became the CEO. I became the CFO. I had taken two accounting classes in college. So I guess that made me qualified to be a CFO. But uh, in the two years after that, we did 12 acquisitions. We built it to about 600 people. And then we merged it into a, a public company and ran that division for them for a period of time. And, and then we left there. And, and that's when really we, we got started with what became Keystone Capital. Extraordinary. It's a great story of just staying with it. And uh, you had a dream, you had a vision as a kid, and you just kept knocking it out one step at a time. And I think, you know, the, the for you in listening to that story and you and I having spent more time together personally over coffees, that mentor made the difference, didn't it? There's no yeah. question. There's no question. It's the it's the one thing that I had the opportunity to to guest lecture at 
different business schools over the years. And there's always that question at the end, what's the what's the secret to success? Or if you could do anything differently, you know, what's your best advice? And it's always hands down the number one thing I tell young people that that those early mentors is what makes a career. And it's what makes you a, a better person too, if you pick the right, the right mentor in every respect, right? I mean, I think it's, yeah. we, we've, we spent a lot of time talking to our own young people about having a higher ambition to what we do every day. It's just wonderful. That's great. Well, private equity has been, it's been pretty flush with cash coming out of this pandemic. You know, it's interesting because, you know, the world, the world has no idea what's really going on during a pandemic or any type of financial crisis. And you wonder, what's going to happen but we've seen we've seen quite a bit of of fundraising a lot of activity going on there seems to be more money out there than ever before what do you attribute that to and how long do you think that's going to last it's a really good question and look i would have never dreamed that it would get to the levels it's gotten to just a point of distinction i i'm not entirely convinced that the amazing amount of capital that's now in private equity is a result of the pandemic. I think it's more related to a different level of financial sophistication or or understanding of the risks and returns benefit of alternative investing, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so historically, you know, your large pensions, your large university endowments, Big foundations. Uh, they would have been uh, invested back back when I. If you start back my my introduction, even you know back when it was a twenty billion dollar cottage industry, allocations to private equity back then from those types of institutions might have been one or two percent, and ninety eight or ninety nine percent would be in public bonds and public equities. You know, starting with a handful of different institutions or university endowments, even they started to realize that the incremental risk you were taking in some of those alternative spaces was not all that great vis-a-vis the increased return expectations. Mm -hmm. And so endowments started to allocate a greater percentage of their underlying capital to these types of firms. And, you know, it it went from 5% to 10% to 20%. And and in some institutions today, it's as much as 50%. And, And so that's what's really propelled the amount of capital that's that's in the space and to answer your, the last part of your question just in terms of like how long does that last i don't think i see that changing in terms of i, I don't see those institutions decreasing their allocation percentage but i'm not entirely convinced that you also see them continue to 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 grow even larger right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the piece that you're missing is liquidity right these investments you know, can be locked up capital for three to five years. And, you know, these endowments and foundations, you know, have a fiduciary obligation to use some of that capital for the greater good. And so I think they need to preserve a large percentage of their overall allocation to more public liquid securities. I got it. And you, you folks raised your first public fund this last year. It's been very exciting to see and the things that you've been doing. You know, you have a, a wonderful portfolio, diversified portfolio. I'm not sure if I'm up to date on it or not, but there's. I'm thinking there are three categories. Uh, business and professional services is one of the categories, uh, industry, technology, and manufacturing, and then consumer and food. Is that right? Yeah, I would define it as a little differently in terms of 
tech-enabled services, what we think of as engineering and technical services, and then and then food are the sectors that we think we've got great insight into. In terms of whether or not you've got to strictly stay in services or manufacturing or distribution, we're open-minded to playing in those three spaces so long as we're leveraging insight that we've developed in terms of the underlying sectors, right? So for instance, for the past six years, we've been building a transportation and water engineering inspection and construction management firm. We we started with a firm in Florida that had roughly 150 people, roughly $20 million of revenue. Uh, today, we're approaching 1,500 people in about $250 million of revenue. You know, we were in one state with really one service line. Today, we're in 23 states with four or five different service lines. But we're using the insight we generate from that business to think about other adjacent markets where we can leverage our experience and our professional staff to to help us be successful in, in an adjacency. So we've recently launched a water, wastewater operations and maintenance firm. Obviously, it can feed off of the insight of the engineering firm. We've just recently launched an environmental practice and in a very similar way, you know, it's we're just leveraging the flywheel sort of network effect yes of the, the greater experience and collective keystone yeah it's it's fantastic and you know just the examples you brought out fall into our world of the built environment industry which is massive in size and diverse and has lots of interconnectedness to it our audience that's listening to this podcast is very focused on on the built environment and of course you know i think that it's been an exception rather than the rule that private equity has played in our space on a consistent basis. And, you know, whether you're talking about architecture or engineering or construction or building, certainly a little bit more on the on the building product manufacturing, lots of opportunities in that space. What do you attribute? Uh, maybe it's because you folks have some internal domain knowledge and expertise that gives you more comfort, more confidence to play in this space. But by and large, most of the private equity groups don't kind of engage in our world that much. Can you speak into that a bit and what you think is perhaps the inhibitor on the side of that and maybe what is maybe some of your secret sauce because you do have domain expertise? Yes, it's it's interesting. It's and it's changing quite rapidly. I, I referenced if I go if I take even a step further back and maybe even a little bit more core to design intelligence, our original investment into this space was a company based in New York City that was one of the leading curtain wall and building facade consultancies in the world. Uh, it was a business called Israel Berger and Associates. We partnered with the two principals there, Israel Berger himself and Mark Weisbach. And they had a vision that these, you know, especially the super high rises, you know, they've become so sophisticated in terms of their design and you know they're almost like living breathing structures you know these developers would hire an architect of record but then ultimately that architect of record would have all sorts of different consultancies helping them with the building facade acoustics you know security IT you name it energy efficiency uh, even blast mitigation and so they had this thought that 
you know, so many of those disciplines are in conflict with one another. You know, we, they hire all these different consultancies and then all we do is argue in their conference room. Wouldn't it be great if we went out and acquired the lead, the thought leader in each of those different areas? And then, you know, we could take that design and in the comfort of our own conference room, have a debate and then come back with a, a holistic solution that solves all the issues and so that was the original strategy. And we we pursued that and built that business, grew it four or five-fold in, in revenue and profit over a nine-year period of time. But back then, we were probably one of the only firms and yeah. that was yeah. in an engineering-oriented service. And people's anxiety around that was mostly around the fact that the assets rode up and down in elevators every day, and they could always you know sell the business to you and then walk across the street and reform it. Ultimately, though, it's it's not that dissimilar from lots of other industries, uh, whether it be healthcare services or uh, you know any kind of business service. I mean, where you're using human capital as the underlying most important asset to generate the revenue and profit. So what we've seen is, you know, off of the success of that transaction, which is now on its third private equity owner. You know, we've seen a lot of other new entrants to the space, maybe without the same kind of network effect that we have, but but they're trying to generate and, de- and develop that themselves. What what's driving that? You know, historically, you know, the people that might be listening to this podcast, those entrepreneurs would would build a great business, and and then when it was time for them to look to retire, they might start to to sell the equity to their underlying junior partners and they would collect on that the the sale of those securities maybe over a 10 or 20 year period of time and and that worked fine when the businesses were smaller but a lot of these businesses have grown to be sizable enterprises and and that ownership transition is is tricky and a lot of those junior partners quite frankly are coming out of school with with their own student debt uh, they're trying to save for their retirements, and they don't necessarily want to take on a, a lot of debt to to become owners of these businesses. And so that that doesn't necessarily work as well as it once did. And quite frankly, those original founding entrepreneurs are also looking to get their capital more upfront than they are over a 20-year period of time. And so that's why private equity has kind of come in to try to solve that problem for them. So it, it starts there. But the secondary piece to it, and maybe the secondary and the, the, the tertiary reason that I think it's really happening is every industry is rapidly consolidating, and you're either going to be the consolidator or you're going to be the consolidated. And and for a lot of these entrepreneurs, they really value their culture and they value the environment in which their people operate, and they don't want to lose that. And so they can align with somebody like ourselves and. And, and they can lead that charge and they can have a big seat at the table in terms of how that business is built. And, and certainly that's been the, the experience we've had with, I think we're on our eighth or ninth engineering firm now that we're building. And uh, maybe the third var- variable actually, what I, which I should mention is talent. I think it's become increasingly difficult to get younger professionals to join some of these smaller firms. And so I think what we have found is that we're having a lot more success getting really talented people to to join these businesses when they can see the vision, when they can see a much bigger vision, right, of what we're trying to build as opposed to an owner-operated business. 
I think that's a, a really keen point to bring out uh, around talent. One of my best friends in the world lives in Boston, Massachusetts, and he has this interesting saying about professional services business, very much like you talked about the elevator. He says in his Boston brogue, you know, Dave, the most valuable assets of a professional services business are the asses that walk out of here every day. And he says, but he, but he says, you know, we treat them more like asses than assets. And it hits me that in my time of working with, with you folks, the, there is a distinguishing characteristic of Keystone. And that is that you don't come in and take over a firm. You come up alongside the management teams. You support them, coach them give them what they need to be able to be successful, but you're not a domineering force that we have seen in other private equity transactions with folks. And I think this is a distinction of Keystone. Obviously, you have expertise, knowledge that most don't have. You you can speak the language, certainly of the engineering groups, et cetera. But it's more than that. It is It is a partnering rather than a domineering dynamic. And that is radically attractive, certainly to entrepreneurs who have started a business, run it for 20 or 30 years, and they're looking for an exit, or maybe just not an exit. They're just looking for a way to expand. And they don't want to give up everything for a cash out. They're looking for authentic partnering. And I think that's what you bring to the table. Well, I, I really appreciate that sentiment. And and certainly that has always been what my original partner, Kent Doughton, and I have wanted the culture of Keystone to be. These entrepreneurs are amazing. I mean, they they started something with a hope and a dream through blood, sweat, and tears. They built something of tremendous value. They they created uh, for their community a source of employment. In many of these engineering firms, you know, they're they're designing parks and spectacular buildings that are going to be there for a long long period of time. I mean, they really are local treasures, and they should be treated as such. And those individuals that built those businesses should be honored and respected for what they built. And I I do think there has been an increasing uh, playbook or strategy on the part of the private equity firms to have what they call this executive bench. And they they keep these people kind of parked on the sidelines and they wait for an opportunity for them to find this small little business. And then they they drop these people in on top of these yeah. companies. And it's almost like out with the old and in with the new. And and I think it's I think it's very dangerous. And and I think it's really unfortunate to lose that institutional history and memory. Uh, and so we we really are all about trying to mentor those individuals, you know, to to play a different playbook and, and one that's moving a lot faster and where there's a lot more opportunity for growth. And, and as the old leaders sort of step up and play bigger roles in a bigger enterprise, it creates a tremendous amount of opportunity for the next level to step up and so forth and so on. So we've had tremendous success in terms of our financial returns. And I attribute so much of that to the fact that we've been able to retain that original founding kind of leadership team in our businesses. The Design Futures Council, one of our business units here at Design Intelligence, is made up of several hundred thousand people in the built environment industry. Actually, I think it's a little over half a million employee people are re represented in through all the member firms, which are architectural firms and engineering firms, et cetera, et cetera. 
if any of them are listening to this and they're going, gosh almighty, I, I've, I've always been afraid of private equity or honestly, I hate private equity because they're mean, nasty people, right? They come in and drop executives on top of us and steal our business. But now they've just heard what you and I have been talking about and they're trying to understand how could I leverage a relationship with a keystone to grow my business create a longer future for my organization, my team, the people I've invested in. What what do they need to do to connect with you folks? We actually just had this happen to us last fall. The environmental firm that we got that we're involved with is a actually a Canadian-based firm. It's one of the largest environmental firms uh, across the entire country. It's a firm called Pynchon, and their CEO reached out to us directly. And I've never asked him how he found our found our name specifically, but what he had noticed was he had heard and watched the story of Vidaris, which was that initial business I spoke to that was the building sciences consultancy. He had heard about and, and witnessed Consor, uh, our transportation and water engineering firm, and when he first reached out to us, he said, "Hey, I, I, I've seen what, seen how those businesses were built, and and the reputation you you guys have have gained in the industry with it. I want to do that in the environmental space. I want to I want to find a partner who can help us bring what we do up in Canada down into the states. And and I and I and I want a partner to do that. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't hesitate to pick up the phone. It's uh, we would welcome that." Uh, there's people like yourself that I would lean on. I, I think, you know, in many respects, David, I mean, you're you're a perfect filter for 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 people to talk to about who you know and 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 have respect for vis-a-vis those that you don't. Well, thank you for that. But I, I just I just think there's so much untapped potential in this industry that will not happen without partners like a Keystone to come alongside and to give them the leverage that they need to take advantage of this unbelievable market that we've entered into. There's amazing wealth ahead. There's so much more to be done. And I think we have everything we need to do it. We just have to hook everybody up together. It could be pretty cool. So last question for you. What do you enjoy really doing when you're not making deals in private equity? It's a good question. I I actually love what I do. And I spend way too much time working because uh, I don't really see it as work. I I find tremendous joy in in seeing people grow and develop. And I've actually really taken a particular interest in our youngest people out there, trying to help them find that first opportunity or that first job. It's become a bit of a hobby of mine to get people placed. Uh, we could talk about that in a different different podcast, but. Uh, and then in terms of other hobbies, I, I've got a real passion for open spaces. I spent a fair bit of time out in Montana, uh, where I love to hike and fish and, and be outdoors out there in the mountains. I'm an avid uh, saltwater fly fisherman. Uh, I do that uh, in, in warmer climates, largely the Bahamas or, or Mexico. Basically, anything outdoors uh, brings me a lot of joy. That's fantastic. And it's always renewing, isn't it, when we get outside a little bit? Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us on This Is Design Intelligence. It's been an honor to have you with us. 
Well, I, I really appreciate your leadership and especially thought leadership in this space. I, I think it's a really exciting uh, industry and I agree with you. I, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in the future uh, and I'm just glad to be a partner to you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.